What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Young people, trans athletes, um, who often have their stories taken from them and used against them. But immediately upon meeting Michael and Claire, um, I knew what their intention was in making the film. And that was to return these stories to these young people for whom they always belonged. And I wanted to be a part of that journey um, and returning these stories to them and in showing them as the heroes in their own stories, which is so rarely the case. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. There is a brilliant new film, a documentary you can see on Hulu called Changing the Game about young transgender athletes. And this week we speak to Michael Barnett, who's the film's director, and Alex Schmieder, the producer. And I'm so excited to talk to them because I, I just think that the film is brilliant, it celebrates sports, and it's something that I'm very interested in chopping it up with these two filmmakers about. And I love documentaries, so you know that's always going to be a part of the discussion as well. I also have some choice words about the backlash brewing in the world of sports. This is ugly, and we got to talk about it. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. That's Sit Your Ass Down. And that's it. But let's get started, if we could, with Michael Barnett and Alex Schmieder, the director and the producer of Changing the Game. First and foremost, uh, to my audience, um, we're here with Michael Barnett, the film's director, director of Changing the Game, and Alex Schmitter, who is the producer. And, you know, the, the first and foremost, I want to ask you both, starting with you, Michael, uh, what compelled you to take this on as a project? Yeah, the, the, the genesis of the project started before I ever thought about making a film. Um, Someone very near and dear to me began their transition. They came to me for uh, support, and I pretty quickly realized that I didn't um, have all the tools necessary. Uh, so I kind of went to work. You know, I've been a filmmaker a long time, and I just <clears throat> kind of started to dive in, uh, you know, doing what I do uh, with the way that I know how to research. And um, I pretty quickly came across Mac's story, which which I found very compelling. And it was helping me sort of contextualize a lot of the questions I was asking. And uh, it, it was also one of those stories that as a filmmaker, I was like, well, you know, I didn't start this path thinking about making a film, but this seems like a pretty uh, 
incredible story and one that should be told. And then I got connected with Alex. He was working at Glad at the time. He still is now. He left for a while. Um, but uh, and we started a really um, long conversation that is still going on now, uh, four years later, uh, about you know where this film should be, uh, should it be, uh, who should be the you know the filmmaking team, and does he want to be a part of it? And away we went. So just to be clear, before I get to you, Alex, it was it was Max Story, who, of course, is a high school wrestler from from Texas. Uh, that was the story that brought you into uh, the, the ecosystem of trans athletics. That was the story. Yeah, it was really Max Story. Um, his his was kind of the first of these, uh, you know, kind of national news stories from the last couple of years that I think popped and uh, it hadn't quite become the story that it became while we were filming, but uh, it was kind of early in Max, you know, journey of his sort of media awareness that, that I found it on like a, you know, like a Washington uh, uh, post like blog or something. I can't remember, but yeah, it was Mac first. Yeah. And Alex, same question for you. What, what attracted you to this project in particular to, to deal with trans athletes and, uh, and their lives? Yeah. I mean, I, while I was working at GLAD, I saw the not national news stories picking up about Mac. So I was aware of him. And then I got this cold call from Michael and Claire Tucker, my now co-producer. And they just started asking questions about should they make this film? Should they be the filmmaking team? What would they need to do to do it right if they did did it? And as someone who works in helping content creators tell accurate and authentic stories about the trans community, I was very hesitant. I mean, this is a group of very vulnerable young people, trans athletes, um, who often have their stories taken from them and used against them. But immediately upon meeting Michael and Claire, um, I knew what their intention was in making the film. And that was to return these stories to these young people who, for whom they always belonged. And I wanted to be a part of that journey um, and returning these stories to them and in showing them as the heroes in their own stories, which is so rarely the case. Yeah, and I want to get to that. I think the film is brilliant and some of the choices that you all have made um, in centering the joy of sports is something that shines through the film and the joys of, of teamwork and camaraderie. It really is beautiful. Um, but before we get to that, when, when you started this project, and I'll start with you, Michael, could you have imagined that uh, trans, that young trans athletes could have become like the, the right wing uh, boogie people and, and them turning this into this uh, kind of deeply, deeply damaging, hot-button political issue about whether or not particularly trans girls would be allowed on the athletic field? I mean, could you have imagined that when you said, hey, I'm going to start doing this project? Or or did, were, were the rumbles of that already underway? You know, it's hard. It's interesting to kind of look backwards and, and think about when we very first started. You know, Max Story was already becoming uh, national headlines, if not global headlines. And um, I, I think we knew, whether it was completely conscious or not, that the story was going to continue to crescendo uh, as it has. So it's hard to look back. You know, do, did I think it would become sort of the center of a national debate, you know, which is a deep reveal of 
you know, bigotry and hatred. Uh, I, I don't know if I thought that it would <clears throat> reach this point, particularly at the kind of legislative level. Um, I thought we were past that. Uh, apparently not. Um, so yeah, that's an, it's an interesting question. You know, a lot of people are like, wow, what timing, you know, how yeah. fortunate I think, wow, what timing, how unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> so, so great way to put it. No, it is watching it thinking, wow, how quickly did they make this? But then it takes place over the course of a long period of time because it does hit the moment. So on the nose. What what about you, Alex? Could could you have seen the crescendo that was coming when you started to work on this project? You know, it is a really great question. I don't think that I could have anticipated what would be happening right now in this moment. That being said, I'm very candid and honest about how I had to overcome my own discomforts as a trans person myself. So as Mac's story was getting as large as it was, Andrea's was starting to pick up in the media as we were already on our journeys together. And I realized very quickly that I had a lot of preconceived notions that had been informed by very specific and narrow media stories. And so, you know, if I was working through this myself, there was an internal recognition in me that probably other people who, you know, aren't a part of the community, who aren't as um, tapped into these conversations would also be having these fears stirred up um, specifically by people who wanted to use trans youth as, you know, political pawns in, in, a, in a larger, you know, attack on the equality of this community. So, no, I, I did not anticipate, but given my own um, journey, I, I did believe that a lot of people would be at least starting on their journey um, very soon. Mm. And Alex, were sports ever a part of, of your life? I mean, was, was there an identification uh, with, with some of the protagonists in the film? Oh, yeah. I mean... I played sports when I was younger um, and I loved them and I was really good uh, despite the fact that I'm 4'11", 5'2", on my driver's license, people would always look at me and they would make assumptions about how good I was. I remember when I was playing baseball, um, <clears throat> the outfield would say, oh, you can come in like this kid's not going to really, you know, we, we don't have to worry about the home run. And I completely defied what their expectations were because of my appearance and my height. And I think so much of this story um, is really about not underestimating the strength and resilience of these young people in the face of the unimaginable. I mean, the things that they go have to go through just to be themselves and to play the sports they love is unbelievable. And, and we always say, you know, they are so incredibly brave and everyone who watches thinks they are so incredibly courageous and brave and they are, but they shouldn't have to be. It shouldn't have to be an act of courage to be yourself and to play the sports that you love. Mm. You mentioned that word brave and I, I, I think, Michael, that it was a very brave choice when I was watching the film. What, what I kept thinking in my mind is, is to have the focus to be on the joy of sports, the power of sports, the relationships with teammates, the, the the support that that brings to people at a very delicate time in their lives. 
how did you come to was that a decision that you made to focus on that because when i when i before, honest to be very honest before i started watching the film i made the assumption that it would focus on the horrors and the sadness of all the repression and the the difficulties and everything that's been in the news recently partly because my mind is being shaped by how ugly news coverage of trans athletes has been in, in recent months but you focused on the joy instead was was that was that a conscious choice Yes and no. I mean, it's 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 a it's a great question, actually. You know, when we start a film like this, it's it's really a verite film, right? We go in with some intentions, but we really let what plays out inform us. And these athletes, uh, particularly Mac um, and Andrea, the the passion they had for sports, and Sarah Rose as well, the passion they had for sports, the dedication they had from sports. Um, I think is so linked to the benefits you get from sports. It's such a symbiotic relationship, their relationship to sports, right? The more they get from it, the more they're putting into it. And as we were filming, it was very easy to focus on that because it was very truthful and very real and happening right in front of us. Uh, and I think also it is a visual counter argument to, you know, the argument of fair. Mm-hmm. And when we start to talk about fair, right, we're forgetting it's 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 the wrong conversation because what we're forgetting is what you actually get from sports, all the positive benefits, right? And you see that in our film. Uh, you see it so much so that it it's informing who they're going to become as people. Uh, and so to strip that from them, right? Let's um, let's imagine for a second that Mac was not allowed to compete at all, and our film had none of those joys and none of those benefits that he gets from sports. It would be a very different film. That's right. I mean, same same question for you, Alex. I guess as the film was being made and you're watching the dailies, were you getting a sense of, whoa, this is going to be a film that actually is rooted in, in joy as opposed to something that's a, a tale of, of repression? Were, were you getting that as the film was being made? You know, I think Michael answered in a similar way that I will, in that we were just watching these stories unfold in front of us. And it was our job to reflect what was really happening in their lives onto the screen, because that's what good documentary filmmaking is. You know, we are we are letting the subjects lead us in their lives and show us what their lives are like. And there was so much joy. There was so much love that was embedded in their lives through sports, through their families, through communities. And it's just the simple fact that we don't usually see those stories. It's not as if they don't exist, but typically when we see stories about trans people, specifically mm -hmm. trans athletes being told, it's centered on one extreme end. It's only the negative. It's only the struggle. It's only all the detractors. Whereas the reality is that there is an overwhelming amount of support um, out in the world and for these young people. And it was very important for us as filmmakers um, to focus in on that very real reality, that there is that love and support and that, that personal gain from connecting with sport community and having teammates and developing trust and learning how to win and learning how to lose sports is you know, so baked into so many of our lives and the benefits that we get from it, I think, aren't often highlighted. And so that was what the film aimed to do is just 
show the realities of what these young athletes go through. And, and part of that is enjoying the sport. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you both uh, made reference to the fact that, you know, you take on this subject, you're talking about a, a vulnerable population. Um, and so th there need to be sensitivities that are that are that are expressed and that that are operated upon. And I'm just curious, have you heard yet from from Andrea? Have you heard yet from Mac? Have you heard from the subjects of the film? Um, and what what has their response been and them and their families? Oh, yeah, we're in constant communication. We have been for a long time. Um, yeah, you know, I don't love speaking for them, but I, I think that that Alex and I can both say with with confidence that they love the film and that they feel the film is a really honest representation of their lives. Uh, and I am really proud of that. Uh, you know, it's it was certainly the goal from the beginning to go in there and try and stay um, objective and try and make something that was a beacon and try and do something with intention. Uh, and as these stories were playing out, uh, hoping that the outcome would be, you know, positive uh, mm -hmm. for them as we went through this journey. But we didn't know, you know, once again. So uh, I do think, you know, I mean, I, I do know that they, they and their families really, really love the film and find it to be um, theirs. You know, they have real ownership over it. And I think it has provided, you know, real agency for them to kind of take their narratives back from how their stories have been hijacked, you know, much like you said when we started this conversation, from what you thought, you know, your preconceived notion of what you thought uh, these stories mm -hmm. were to be. So I'm really, really proud of that and honored that they trusted us to, to um, you know, go on that journey with them. Yeah, just, and I'll just... Oh, sorry. I'll, just add yeah. to that. I'll just add to that really quickly. You know, we, as Michael said, we are completely honored and, and grateful that they trusted us to help them tell their stories on their own terms because their stories are so sacred and they had been so, um, you know, exploited and used against them. And so it, I think it was very important for us. I mean, Michael and the filmmaking team met with these families for, you know, sometimes a year in the case of Mac before ever bringing a camera. This was about developing that trust, letting them know that we were, our intention um, was to share their stories from their own perspectives and experiences. And so that development of trust was so important to us. And simultaneously, you know, we, we actually filmed with seven athletes and only three make it into the film. Mm -hmm. And our filmmaking teams had hard discussions about who would ultimately make it into the final film, who would benefit from a larger platform like this. We didn't want to put anyone in, in, in an increasingly vulnerable state. So for Mac and Andrea, this was a chance for them to retake their stories. And for someone like Sarah, who is very clearly made for advocacy and communications, this was going to provide her a larger platform um, to do the things that she loves and excel. You know, this is such a film of moments. Like when I think of the, the, the movie and I think back on my experience of watching it, I think of these very specific moments like uh, Mac's girlfriend being besotted with him, for example, like that, that, that is just 
so so sweet and it stays with me or Andrea with, with her friends. And I wanted to ask you, what, what moment from the film sticks with you? I have I have a couple of moments. You know, there's I, I there's so many moments in the film that I really, really love. And having seen the film, you know, bordering a thousand times now, uh, I I have moments that are kind of unexpected that are just tiny little like the minutiae, you know, details in the film that I love. But the 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 moments that I that I love and sort of not love, you know, the bullying scene of Mac online is a uh, profound testament to how he endures, but how fragile uh, that courage is. Um, and it breaks my heart every time I watch it. And I've seen it so many times. Um, and uh, when Nancy, obviously Grandma Nancy, is helping him run, it is such uh, the opposite end of that pendulum for me to show the love and support that he does have. Uh, and um, yeah, I love the pronoun scene a lot. I think it's a I think it's a humorous way to get through a uh, a thing that the cis world struggles with. Yeah. Um, and I think for us as filmmakers, it's a real it's a real gift to be able to present it that way instead of clinically, um, because it's just really humanizing. You know, Grandpa Roy and Grandma Nancy, they're doing their best, man, you know, uh, and they're doing it with nothing but love. So uh, I yeah, I really love all those uh, sequences. But I, I love there's just so you are right. There's so many moments in the film. I mean, these kids are just such a gift for a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh -uh. Um, yeah, I mean, when Grandma Nancy runs with Mac, I mean, that is so powerful. And, you know, it's funny when we screen the film, when Grandma Nancy says, I'll run with you, you may get there before I do, but I'll run with you. We usually get a laugh in a screening. And at the same time, I'm like bawling at that point because it's also so symbolic and metaphorical. Like, I'll go with you. I'm not gonna be as quick as you, I'm, I, but I am coming with you. And I think that is so powerful. And then, you know, it's, it's the little moments for me, you know, as a transgender man myself, who doesn't often get to see stories that are reflective of our full lives, seeing Andrea and Terry in the nail salon, just having a conversation about their relationship together, it, it's just so profound to me that they, they are uninhibited. They are just there being themselves together, having this moment. It, it's so powerful. And then the final one that absolutely makes me break down in tears and no one can sit around me anywhere in a theater is when um, Sarah is on the chairlift uh, with the young kid that she's teaching at ski school and she's swinging her legs and she's saying, we're not the monsters that people make us out to be. And it's just so innocent how she's, do, you know, doing this thing she loves. She's teaching ski school. She's swinging her legs just like a kid should be able to and not worrying about the outside world. And I think oftentimes for underrepresented communities, that innocence and that youth is stripped. It's taken away. And so I think, you know, that moment for me is also just revolutionary in so many ways. You know, w watching the film, you know, I, I was thinking, okay, the trans community is going to 
love this film. The uh, the cis community of, of allies is going to love this film. But I also kept thinking, like, all the people who are ignorant, if they give this film a chance, if they watch this film, this film could change minds. This film could flip perceptions. I know post-COVID nothing is easy, but what are the plans for screenings, for for coaches, for school administrators, for people who are unsure or are frankly uh, brainwashed by media propaganda around this issue? What, what are the plans to get the word out to communities beyond the circle? Well, having Hulu on our team is, uh, you know, a real gift and, and a miracle in itself, right? To get uh, Hulu and Disney to jump on and support and market a film, and they're really behind the movie, um, that is progress. I don't know how to uh, find a larger platform for to find a larger audience. So um, obviously our film is very easy to find now. Uh, there's a lot of awareness about it, which is extraordinary. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, Hulu has partnered with um, a bunch of different people for education and outreach. Uh, and we're grateful for that as well, which is very uncommon for Hulu to do. So I think it's extraordinary that our partners recognize the impact, potential impact this film can have and be open to very non-traditional avenues, educational avenues to share the film. So the answer is anyone who wants access to this film can have access to this film. That's why we made it and we will find a path forward to do so. Mm. Yeah, and, and just to add on to that, we made, the, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that as you were considering, you know, who was the audience for this film, you were sort of looking at, at a very wide spectrum of people because we did make it for everyone, whether or not you were trans, whether or not you're part of the LGBTQ community, hopefully if you're a sports person, because we describe it, you know, Michael and, and the team shot this like a Nike ad. I mean, it is a celebration mm-hmm. of athletes and, and in the way that we celebrate athletes in our culture is, you know, visually seeing them as the heroes they are. So, you know, if you're a sports fan, if you're part of the community, if you're unfamiliar familiar or unsure or uncomfortable about the subject matter, we invite people to watch it. And as Michael said, Hulu and Disney have just been the greatest champions of ours in allowing us to bring it into different places across the country, everywhere we want to go. We want to have these conversations, which we've found to open up after watching the film because, you know, we've screened it in small town. I mean, we've been on the festival circuit for a few years now and we've screened in small towns, big cities, red states, blue states, older, younger, everybody who watches the film gets to know Mac, Andrea, Sarah, and Terry in ways that they're finally humanized and can have they're, you know, they're considered kids again. And so that invites us then to have the conversation. Okay, where do we go from here? What's next? Let's actually talk about sport and equity and equality in sport and why the attention is so focused on these athletes. And once we do that, we can dig into the real issues um, and, and, you know, just understand that when we're talking about kids, we're talking about kids who just want to play the sports that they love and do it with their friends. Um, so we, we have big plans. Um, and based on our experience and track record, we know that the film can change hearts and minds because of the ones it already has. 
I'll tell you, there's some youth coaches that I, I'm already trying to figure out ways to sit down and make watch this film. I'm a youth coach, and um, you know I've gotten in these discussions with people, and th this film is my new tool in talking to folks. Um, so I'm grateful to you both for that, and everybody involved in the film. Um, as we wrap up the interview, you know we're, we're kind of uh, film nerds on this podcast as well, and I'm wondering, you know, in the style of the film, are, are there any films in terms of either subject or form that provided an inspiration for you in terms of what you wanted this film to look like? Go get it, MB. You can start. Let me ponder that for a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I, I will speak to the way that the film shows up on screen, which is something that I've already sort of mentioned in that, you know, it's beautifully shot. Anyone who watches it is seeing, you know, the the backdrops and the ways that these athletes are centered and beautifully framed um, to show them again as the heroes in their own stories. Um, because again, what has so often happened is they're villainized mm -hmm. um, instead of revered and honored for their courage in just simply being. Um, and so I think when people watch, you're gonna get hints and ideas and um, semblance of, you know, the great sport stories, the great athletes that we celebrate in our culture, they're given the Nike ad treatment. And so I'll let Mikey B speak a little more to that process, but I think it was very important for us, um, to show them in that kind of honoring, uh, aesthetically just celebratory light. Mm. Yeah, you know, talking about that, we have this kind of deeply baked in cinematic language when we when we show sports and when we show athletes mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and that goes backwards, uh, you know, through cinematic history for decades and decades. It goes through, you know, advertising and branding and uh, it's very easy to make an assumption about what you think or thought this film should be, you know, you said it even here, uh, the film defied your expectations. And a lot of people don't bring up the way the film was crafted. And I'm fine with that because I think it actually sits right in the pocket nicely of how we have viewed sports as a culture for a long, long time. And that was a deep intention of ours was to put these kids in that same space, right? To create them, to, to, to uh, show them as the heroes that they are. And uh, it was actually really hard to do. You know, it's a, it's a, it was a very small, self-funded documentary, so it was, it was a, a tough challenge for us with, you know, a crew of two at times uh, wow. to hold ourselves to that standard. Um, and I, I hope the film continues to be for a long time. You know, we tried to make it evergreen. To, and I hope the film really does uh, uh, stand as a beacon uh, for a long time and not just for the community, but for anybody who is um, curious about wanting or needing an education uh, and, and wants to, to come along on this journey. 
Um, it doesn't mean at the end you need to be, you know, standing on the rooftops as an activist, but it, it does mean that you can make small shifts in your own life mm -hmm. uh, of acceptance, right? And I hope that this film, um, you know, finds the audience that we always wished it would, so it can do that work. Oh, I, I think it will. I think it's so brilliant. Um, my, my last question for you both, I always ask this of guests on the show, when people are involved in a project, whether it's making a film or writing a book or preparing for a, uh, the Super Bowl, music inevitably plays a part in their lives. What was your soundtrack when you were making this film? Yeah, I mean, we had, it's, it's, it's a great question. We always start like a Spotify playlist when, when we start a film. And this one turned into, I don't know how many cues are, how many tracks are on there. There's got to be hundreds and hundreds. And, and we start to kind of edit using all that as a temp, right? And a huge part of the, um, how we were informed with music was really listening to the kids and, and listen to the athletes and listening to what they were listening to, right? We did not have the kind of resources and funding to go out and license, you know, 20, 30 uh, pop tunes. So that was never an option. But what we can do is hire, you know, extraordinary composers like our guy Tyler Strickland and Gozi. And we can create and it's it's actually beautiful to hire a composer because what we can do is create this soundscape right we knew that mac was like a big hip-hop head uh and we wanted to be really true to that so a lot of his music and we turn that kind of hip-hop into score right to make it emotional to make it play with the rhythms of the film and the rhythms of the emotion and uh, and we did that with each kid. They each had their own individual soundscape. But at a certain point in the film, you'll notice all of those sounds kind of sync up into one harmonizing mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of tone and aesthetic and, and soundscape. And that was really, really intentional because even though they're unique individuals with their own stories, thematically, we want to tie all these stories together. Emotionally, we want to, you know, them to to all kind of crescendo and harmonize together. And, uh, you know, and then we end it once, and then we kind of bookend it because we start with kind of a banger hip hop tune and we end with a banger hip hop tune with Mac wrestling boys. And that's just sort of good filmmaking, like bookending it that mm -hmm. way is we stretch it out, you know, through the kind of late second act, early third act where all of that music is kind of together because the kids are, there's, it's more montage and it's more unified. And then we stretch their stories back out individually and let those sounds kind of become their own again. So a lot of intention with the music. I'm glad you noticed it. Oh yeah. Tremendous stuff. Well, a Alex, uh, Mikey B, MB, uh, re really do appreciate your time. Thank you for making Changing the Game. Thank you for bringing this film to light. It's, it's an absolute gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. It means a lot. Oh, and we'll be back right after this, uh, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, there is a backlash brewing in the world of sports. Many pro athletes spent much of 2020 raising their voices for justice as workers, citizens, and most pointedly as black and brown athletes who have to suffer racism no matter the size of their paychecks. We have seen athletes give speeches, march, and even strike for black lives. While being a foundational piece of a new civil rights movement, these athletes were also risking their health by playing amidst a deadly airborne virus. The response of ownership was kind of an unspoken agreement. You keep the money rolling in by giving us something to televise, and in return we'll let you use this platform to speak out. To put it crudely, if you show up, leave your family, live in a hermetically sealed bubble, and subject yourself to constant COVID testing, we'll put Black Lives Matter on the court or end racism in the end zone and say no comment when fans and the press ask why you're quoting Angela Davis in press conferences. That cool? But now it's 2021. Many of the masses are vaxxed. Every night at NBA games, we are seeing mainly white fans dump popcorn on players, spit on their team's opponents, run onto the court, and in one case, in what is being investigated as a felony, throwing a water bottle at Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving's head. After that game, Irving said, it's been that way in history in terms of entertainment and performers and sports for a long period of time and just underlying racism and just treating people like they're in a human zoo. Fan belligerence is the sharp, dangerous edge of the backlash, but it's not its only manifestation. The sports world has been roiled last week by Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from the French Open. On a surface level, this story is a simple one. Osaka was refusing to do press conferences because she's dealing with social anxiety and depression. French Open officials fined her $15,000 and she decided that rather than endure the pressers or fight the fines, she would withdraw. A closer look reveals something much more alarming. Naomi Osaka is not only the number two ranked player in the world and arguably the brightest star in her sport, she is also a fearless champion of the Black Lives Matter movement, forcing the issue into the foreground of a very white, conservative country club sport by winning the US Open while wearing face masks with the name of black women and men killed by police violence. This kind of stalwart, anti-racist political messaging is not something we've ever seen in the history of tennis, particularly not on the women's side. Yet the executive organizers of the various Grand Slams shut their mouths and bit their tongues bloody, abiding the fact that during the pandemic, the world was watching this remarkable Haitian-Japanese political athlete turn the sports world on its ear. Osaka now says she suffers from mental illness, and instead of working with her, the French Open opted to discipline her. Their mode of discipline was also well beyond fines. First, they sent a mocking tweet at Osaka's expense, which they quickly deleted. Then the directors of all four Grand Slams issued their own statement, saying that Osaka was risking banishment from the all-important, highly lucrative tournaments if she dared refuse the media going forward. Their bombastic statement, the equivalent of trying to kill an ant with a rocket launcher, was sneeringly dismissive and cold as ice. It was the keep your mouth shut, honey, maybe take a Valium and relax of statements. There was a century plus long history of tennis treating its women players like second class citizens. For the few women of color that have ascended the ranks, the treatment has been even worse. Their response is about disciplining Osaka 
This isn't about press conferences. It's about taking the player who used what in their minds is their platform to go off script and punishing her for it. This is what a backlash to activist athletes looks like. A generalized mood among white fans combining with conservative owners to send a message that 2020 is over and old hierarchies must return. No matter how messy, they want the wine back in the bottle, just as sure as those jerseys and helmets with political slogans are back with the mothballs. Players, their unions, and allies need to wake up and start to devise a strategy for how they're going to respond, or they will lose all of the hard-fought and historic gains of the past year, a time when the athletes took the politics of this nation from the movement for black lives to the 2020 elections and rocked their core. We all had better watch their backs, because elephants never forget. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! I mean, partially, I think it's got to go to Naomi Osaka just for walking. For saying, I am not going to play in this French Open tournament. My mental health matters more. And taking away from herself the chance to win a Grand Slam. And, you know, your number of historic and career Grand Slams, you only have so many opportunities to to, to, to actually hit the numbers that you want to hit. I mean, look at Serena Williams, who's been toiling for that uh, elusive 24th Grand Slam title. Um, and But it's just a courage for Osaka to stand up for herself and say, all right, if you're going to find me, if you're going to threaten me, I'm walking. So I want to give the Just Stand Up Award to Naomi Osaka, but I also want to give it to other athletes like Michael Phelps, local guy from where I live, Steph Curry, and Venus Williams, who had Naomi Osaka's back with statements. Other athletes did as well. And I thought the community coming together to defend and protect Naomi Osaka was very positive. Um, I wish it had been directed less at press conferences and the press and more at the heads of the Grand Slam, because I think it's a bit of a fake battle to say this is about the press versus tennis when it's really about the power of the Grand Slam tournaments and their executive directors versus the players. But that's the Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! Sit your ass down. How can it not go to Roger Goodell on the National Football League for finally both admitting and saying that they will get rid of their policy of race norming. Very glad they're getting rid of race norming. But first of all, let's talk about what race norming is. We've talked about it on this show before. I mean, we were talking about race norming back after the Super Bowl. This is the practice of fudging cognitive tests on black players who have suffered concussions, basically saying they have a low IQ, not because of head injuries sustained during football, but because they're black. Race norming is used quite often in neurological circles, and it's racist and gross. Now the NFL is saying that it will stop race norming when it does its cognitive tests of players 
who have suffered head injuries, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because it was exposed. They were caught. Emails were leaked. The judge who's overseeing the billion-dollar concussion settlement, Anita Brody, was outraged. And she made mediators come together to say, how are we going to get this out of the concussion protocol process? And now you have a league that has count on one hand number of black coaches and executives and count on no hands number of black owners has told on itself once again and is exposing the systemic racism that has always run through league circles. I keep thinking of something that Michael Bennett said. Michael Bennett and I wrote a book together called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And one of the things that Michael said in the book is that one of the great myths is that the NFL is somehow an integrated product. He said it's not integrated, it's segregated between those who play and those who own and those who manage. And Michael Bennett's brother, Martellus, you know, he's f fond of saying that NFL stands for not National Football League, but N-word for lease. And the NFL is only proving their points. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Thank you so much to our guests. Everybody should see Changing the Game. It's a brilliant film. If you like this podcast, you know what to do. Go t feed the algorithm. Go uh, write a little note reviewing the show. Give it a nice review. Do all the little things. Tell a friend, for goodness sakes. You know, we're in a very crowded marketplace, but I think we have a very unique show. So for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.